Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Good to be with you. Hopefully the sun is shining on you. Just let the love of Jesus Christ flow into your life and flow through you to others. Man, good things are going to happen today, I'm telling you. Now, today we're going to talk about Doctrine and Covenants 27 and 28. And it's a lot cooler than you think. Honestly, come along with me. Because remember the whole craziness with mobs tearing down the dam they built to baptize Emma? Then Joseph is arrested and then re-arrested. Well, in all of that, they didn't get a chance to confirm Emma, a member of the church. So they're going to have a confirmation meeting for her and for Sally Knight. And so they decided it would be nice to also have a sacrament meeting to celebrate this confirmation with the promise that the Spirit will always be with these powerful women. But they don't have any wine on hand to perform the ordinance. So Joseph heads off to go get some at the store. But on his way, he's met by an angel with a very specific message. Dude, wait a minute, just a minute, time out. How cool is it, this? Like most of us have had like our moms or wives send us a text when we're going to the store, like Joseph's going to the store so that we don't forget the eggs. But this is a whole new level of shopping reminders, like an angel of God coming. And he says, listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, your Lord, your God, and your Redeemer, whose word is quick and powerful. For behold, I say unto you that it mattereth not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink when ye partake of the sacrament. If it so be that ye do it with an eye single to my glory, remembering unto the Father my body, which was laid down for you, and my blood, which was shed for a remission of your sins. Wherefore, a commandment I give unto you, that you shall not purchase wine, neither strong drink of your enemies. Wherefore... You shall partake of none except that, uh, except it is made new among you. So two things stand out here to me. Number one, God doesn't want them to buy alcohol from their enemies. Remember, this is years before the word of wisdom is instituted and they drink alcohol beyond uh, at this point, And even after the word of wisdom is received, they drink alcohol. It doesn't become binding as a commandment till the early 1900s. But anyways, something obviously sketchy is going on with the people who they would buy this wine from, so don't do it. In fact, from now on, how about you just use new wine that you make? Number two, growing out of this, God comments that wine isn't even the point and that it mattereth not what you shall eat or what you shall drink when you partake of the sacrament. See, here's the thing about ordinances. What they do is give you a chance to exercise faith in or have a connective power with the Savior. And Jesus could use whatever he wanted to make a covenant with us. Like he could be like, from now on, we're doing holy high fives and the deacons just go through slapping hands. But Jesus is a good teacher. So he chooses a ritual. He chooses an ordinance that shows you how graphically Jesus loves you. It shows you just in the most visceral way how he allowed his physical form to be torn apart and his blood spilt for our restoration, for our freedom. It's good stuff. And that could be it. And that could be sufficient. The angel says, hey, don't go get wine. Use your own. 
But like we've said before, God just can't seem to help but letting more spill in. He can't help but, but to let heaven start to peek through to those who are willing to listen. It's like being assigned a book report on the Korean War and you go to someone wise and experienced uh, and you ask them questions and you write down the answer to your questions. But then afterwards they say something like, did I ever tell you about... This is when you really pay attention. This is where things are really meaningful. This is where the story really is, the meat, the life. So right after the angel says this basic answer to what they're wondering, then in the second half of verse 4, the same thing happens. He says, Yea, in this my father's kingdom, which shall be built on the earth. Okay, now this is big and I don't know if you caught it. I don't know if you get how huge this is. This kingdom, this earth. Like the sphere of COVID, mosquitoes, death, suffering, clogged toilets, and food poisoning. This is the place where God is going to set up his kingdom. That's what he's saying here. This is the extra he's letting slip in that this earth is where he's going to set up his kingdom. How? Well, listen, verse 5. Behold, this is wisdom in me. Wherefore, marvel not for the hour cometh that I will drink of the fruit of the vine with you on the earth. In other words, he says that there's going to be a sacrament meeting and that the sacrament is not just looking back to Jesus' sacrifice, but also it is a celebration. The sacrament is looking forward to when the earth becomes God's kingdom. When the millennium begins, when the celestial transformation takes place in this world and forms it into the kingdom of God. And this whole transformation into the kingdom of God is going to be kicked off with a party, a barbecue. All right, maybe not a barbecue, but like a barbecue. He calls it a sacrament meeting. He says, uh, then he says, here's who's going to come to this party. Here's who's going to come to this meeting. Uh, So listen to who's there, but also to listen to what they bring to the party, because what they bring is going to start the kingdom of God coming to earth. Okay, so so this is valuable what what this angel is letting slip through here. So he says, Jesus is going to be there and he's going to be with Moroni, whom I have sent unto you to reveal the Book of Mormon, containing the fullness of my everlasting gospel, to whom I have committed the keys, not so subtle reminder to look for what they bring, of the record of the stick of Ephraim. So Moroni will be there. And notice how he says that Moroni gave Joseph keys to bring the Book of Mormon. Verse 6, and also Elias. Now, Elias hasn't come to Joseph yet. He will in a couple of years in Kirtland, in the Kirtland Temple, to whom I have committed the keys of bringing to pass the restoration of all things spoken of by the mouth of holy prophets since the world began concerning the last days. And also John, the son of Zacharias, which Zacharias, he... Elias visited and gave promises that he should have a son and his name should be John and he should be filled with the spirit of Elias. Which John I have sent unto you, my servants Joseph Smith Jr. and Oliver Cowdery, to ordain you the, uh, unto the first priesthood. And you'll remember that this priesthood that is restored holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and the keys of baptism by immersion. You'll see that all down in Doctrine and Covenants 13. And then going on with verse 8, which you have received that you might be called and ordained even as Aaron. 
Verse 9, and also Elijah. Elijah also hasn't visited yet, but Joseph knows that he's coming because Joseph um, was told by Moroni the first time that Moroni comes that he that Elijah is going to come. Unto whom I have committed the keys of the power of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, that the whole earth uh, may not be smitten with a curse. So Elijah brings the keys of administering the same blessings that the fathers had. Those fathers are, are talked about in the next verse, in verse 10. And also with Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, your fathers, right? By whom the promises remain. Again, this is fulfilled when Elijah comes. Then you go on to verse 11. And also with Michael or Adam, same person, the father of all, the prince of all, the ancient of days. And we'll find out later in section uh, 128 that Michael has already come at this point, most likely at Joseph and Oliver's baptism. It says over in 128 verse 20, that the voice of Michael on the banks of Susquehanna detecting the devil when he appeared at the angels of, uh, as an angel of light. Then he goes on in the next verse in verse 21 in 128 saying, the voice of Michael, the archangel, the voice of Gabriel the vo- uh, and of Raphael and diverse angels and uh, from Michael or Adam down to the present time, all declaring their dispensation, their rights, and their keys. All right, back here to verse 12, okay, in, verse, in section 27. And also Peter and James and John. These we've already talked about. They came a couple of weeks after John the Baptist and Michael, whom I have sent unto you, by whom I have ordained you and confirmed you to be apostles and a special witnesses of my name and bear the keys of your ministry, and of the same which I have revealed unto them, unto whom I have committed the keys of my kingdom. I know I'm not being super subtle here. And the dispensation of the gospel for one last time and for the fullness of times in which I gather together all things in one, both in heaven and in earth. So did you catch it? Hopefully you did because it really wasn't subtle. So you see who's showing up to this kingdom of God kickoff barbecue celebration, right? You get Moroni, Elias, John the Baptist, Elijah, Michael, Peter, James, and John. And, and you saw what they're bringing, right? Not chips. Well, at least chips aren't listed here. They're bringing keys. So what are the keys? What is he talking about? Because he's emphasized it over and over again. And these keys are crucial to starting the kingdom. Well, um, like priesthood, let's just start with priesthood in the priesthood keys. Priesthood, as you know, is synonymous with power. It's quite simply a different word for God's power. It's kind of like uh, you could say electricity and power and mean the same thing. Same here, priesthood or power, same, same. Brigham Young says that the priesthood is the power by which the worlds are, were, and will continue forever and ever. It's just, it's God's power. In other words, priesthood or God's power is what fuels the universe. And so what then are keys? Well, God has given us access to his power or priesthood as we participate in priesthood ordinances and covenants with him. So and we as members of the church have priesthood power. Uh, are we good so far? Priesthood keys then are simply the authority or authorization Heavenly Father has given to priesthood leaders to direct the use of his priesthood power uh, on this earth, okay? So keys authorize and direct the use of God's power on earth. President Nelson invites us to, to think of it this way. He says, prior to my call uh, to the 12, I served as a medical doctor and surgeon. I had earned two doctor's degrees. Dude, this dude is ridiculously smart. Uh, 
I had been certified by two specialty boards. That long preparation had consumed many years, yet it carried no legal permission. Keys were required. They were held by the authorities of the state governments and the hospitals in which I, ha- uh, I desired to work. Once those holding proper authority exercised those keys by granting me a license and permission, then I could perform operations. In return, I was obligated to obey the law, to be loyal, and to understand and not abuse the power of the surgeon's knife. The important steps of preparation, permission, and obligation likewise pertain to other occupations, end quote. I I think that's a good way to look at it. God grants us his power here on earth and directions on how to use it or keys. Both are important, both power and keys, both power and directions on how to use it or authorization on how to use it. It's like having both a car and directions on which side of the road the car should drive. Having a car but no direction on which side to drive leads to chaos, wrecks, and death. Power and direction give us the ability to move forward rapidly and be safe. This idea of keys to direct the church becomes very important very quickly. Around the same time over in Fayette, New York, you remember this is where Joseph and Oliver finished up Book of Mormon translation at the Whitmer Farm, where the church is organized. Well, Joseph has been down in Harmony working on his farm in Pennsylvania, and Oliver and the Whitmers have been up in Fayette farming, living, studying the scriptures. And while they're reading the Book of Mormon, they come across verses that teach about Zion, the new Jerusalem. And it says that in the Book of Mormon that this new Jerusalem is going to be formed on the American continent. And this idea completely enthralls them. And they think about and speculate heavily about the location of this new Jerusalem, this location of Zion. But all this seems to be clarified when Hiram Page... Uh, a Whitmer son-in-law, he, he's married to Catherine Whitmer, he received several revelations by medium of a light gray, highly polished stone. It's about five inches by three inches by about a quarter inch thick. And it's got two round holes drilled in it. Um, this, it was most likely a, a Native American artifact generally used around, uh, worn around the throat. And so he starts getting revelations through this stone. Now, these revelations recorded where Zion would be and how it would be built up and how the church would be ordered to bring these things about. Now, nobody was thrown off by the fact that, that Hiram is receiving revelations through the medium of a stone. They, they believed that there was a strong biblical precedent for such things. Moreover, they, they believed that sacred objects, stones in particular, were the way that Joseph translated the Book of Mormon. So Oliver and the rest of the Whitmers are very excited about Hiram Page's revelations and discuss them at length. Joseph is a little bit more cautious, wondering about how, how do we balance individual revelation and church revelation? You see, like at the time, especially in government or political circles, the, the best way to govern people or to govern an organization is really a hot topic. The U.S. constitutional government is formed in 1787 only about 40 years before this time period. That, that's how old I am, like, so not that long ago, right? And the U.S. government is founded on the principle that nobody should be trusted with power. Like, uh, we should carefully balance powers and give nobody complete power. 
And shortly after this point, we have the French Revolution, where people question the absolute authority of a king. And then they question the, the power of a collective parliament. And then they basically question all power and literally, literally just kill anybody who disagrees with them. It's messy. So, so the United States and many modern nations are founded on the idea of strict separation of powers. Trust no one with power. Power should be doled out in little pockets and there should always be someone on the other side with a stick to limit how much power you can use. Joseph's, Joseph's vision and God's vision from the beginning is radically different. Instead of trust no one with power, God, God wants to trust everyone with power. Everyone. All baptized males get a priesthood office. Every baptized member has access to priesthood power through covenants to access the gifts of the spirit, including gifts to teach, speak, and to heal. It is radically different. Everyone. But this instance with Hiram Page exposes the dangers to of widespread power. Have you ever gone to a meeting that is radically democratic where everyone has power? It's honestly kind of exhausting. It's kind of a cute theory that everybody gets a vote, but in practice, it's really cumbersome. It's kind of like when everybody has power in this sense, nobody has power. It's kind of like Parks and Rec. I don't know if you've seen it, but they have a town hall meeting and this is the one where they want to make a time capsule of meaningful things. But everyone just values different things. Some people want to put in a copy of the Bill of Rights. Another person wants to put in his grandma's diary. Another dude wants to put in the Twilight books. And it just goes on and on. When everybody's in charge of making Thanksgiving gravy, the gravy is horrible. So there's some real concern with Hiram Page's revelations mandating things for the entire church. Can everybody mandate for everybody else? How is this going to work? So Joseph prays and Doctrine and Covenants 28 uh, directs Oliver Cowdery uh, to take some actions. In there, first God maintains the absolute reality of personal inspiration and revelation. He says, Behold, I say unto you, Oliver, that it shall be given unto thee, that thou shalt be heard by the church uh, in all things whatsoever thou shalt teach them by the comforter concerning the revelations and commandments I have given. And so he just preserves right up front that there is personal revelation. Verse two, but behold, verily, verily, I say unto thee, no one shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church, excepting my servant Joseph Smith Jr., for he receiveth them even as Moses. Verse 3, And thou shalt be obedient unto the things which I shall give unto him, even as Aaron, to declare faithfully the commandments and revelations with power and authority for the church. So, like, he uses an example of Moses and Aaron. You remember Moses and Aaron's dynamic in the Bible. It went like this. Moses would give a command and Aaron would carry it out. Uh, Moses uh, would say, Aaron, throw down your rod. He'd throw it down and it turns into a stake. A snake, not a stake, a snake. And at Moses' command, Aaron stretched forth the rod and the Nile turned to blood in Exodus chapter 7. And then at Moses' command, frogs come up and Aaron stretches out his hand and lice come out, right? And so on and on it goes. So Aaron is this great demonstration of the power that can flow into your life with prophetic alignment. But Aaron was also an example of what happened when he and Miriam were not aligned with Moses. In Numbers 12, Aaron and Miriam complained that Mo about Moses' exclusive claim to be the Lord's prophet. 
Their presumption was rebuffed quickly by God, who affirmed Moses' uniqueness as the one with whom the Lord spake face to face. And the punishment was a skin disease like leprosy that was only healed by Moses' intercession. So God is saying, yes, you have power. Yes, you will get revelation. But alignment with my chosen servant is key in this endeavor. And then God restates things saying in verse four, if thou, Oliver, are led at any time by the comforter to speak or teach or at all times by the way of commandment unto the church, thou mayest do it. If you're led by the spirit, do it. Verse five, but thou shalt not write by way of commandment. Like you're not gonna tell everybody in the church to do this, but by wisdom. And thou shalt not command him who has at the head. You're not gonna tell the prophet what's to do. And at the head of the church, for I have given unto him keys. Again, this is a central com- component here, right? And so, so the Lord confronts the claim of Hiram Page about the location of Zion, the revelations he's got, with a mission called to Oliver, saying, And now behold, I say unto you, Oliver, that you shall go to the Lamanites and preach my gospel unto them. And inasmuch as they receive thy teaching, thou shalt cause my church to be established among them. And thou shalt have revelations but write them not by way of commandment. And now behold, I say unto you that it is not revealed and no man knoweth where the city of Zion shall be built, but it shall be given hereafter. Behold, I say unto you that it shall be on the borders of the Lamanites. So after this direct contradiction of what Hiram Page says, God goes on to say uh, about how he wants uh, Hiram Page dealt with. He wants Oliver to sit down one-on-one and let Hiram know that he's been deceived and and that the way Hiram's been acting is not how God has organized his church to operate. He points to the articles of the Church of Christ that Oliver had a hand in writing or the constitution of the church that's found in section 20, same kind of deal, right? An outgrowth of the other, which states that Joseph is the first elder of the church with the commission to lead and to watch over the church. And that the policy of the church is going to be done by common consent. Remember, this doesn't mean democracy, um, but rather that it's public. It's out in the open with no coercion. You get a chance to sustain and bind yourself to that action or not. And, and so he's to, to take Hiram between himself, correct him. Hiram accepts, they move on and good things happen. So, so what this revelation does is what God regularly does. It is balanced, temperate, and harmonious. It avoids extremism on either end of the spectrum. It maintains, yes, you have power. Yes, you are endowed with priesthood power and gifts, and you dang well better use them, everybody, all of you. But when it comes to, with, to decisions for the whole church, for revelations for the whole church, we are going to have one leader, one guy with his hands on the steering wheel. Imagine if you, everybody in the car had a steering wheel at the same time. Uh, like you've had backseat drivers before. What if they were actually drivers too? We would all die. Fact, death. Instead from God, we, we have balance and we have trust. So keys lead the church. And they, they help us to know how to utilize the power that God has delegated to us. And th- that is what God is getting at when he talks about all the people uh, that are going to be gathered at this sacrament meeting that is going to initiate the millennium that he talks about back in section 27. Um, God has talked about this meeting. <sighs> I don't like that word. What an inadequate word for this event, meeting. Gross. Um uh, 
meeting. This is not good enough right here. God, God has talked about this event. Let's talk. I'll call it an event for now in way more vivid terms. In other places, he's called this instead of a meeting, he's called it a wedding feast. He's called it a, a, a visit to the tree of life where Nephi eats fruit sweeter than anything you can dream. John's talked about this like strolling through the kingdom of God where the streets are paved with crystal and gold. Like, like, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about a meeting. Like, uh, like we're talking about a sacrament celebration. And, and in this, I got to say that the image that I like most here of this, this sacrament meeting is wedding feast. I think it's actually closest to what he's talking about here. Weddings in Jesus' day were a big deal. Like they were the big deal. So we've lost a little bit about what he's getting at when he says a wedding feast. Like back in the day, they, they didn't really celebrate holidays or birthdays the same way we do. They had religious holidays, but they were for worship. And birthdays really weren't a thing. But weddings? Weddings were something you could get into. Creating a family like God commanded Adam and Eve, that was reason to celebrate. And celebrate they did. Weddings typically extended over a period of five to seven days. Uh, usually they, they took place in autumn. That was the best time for marriages. The harvest was in, wine was made, minds were free, hearts were at rest. It was cooler in the evenings. It was a perfect time to stay up late and enjoy God's creations. The whole village would gather for the party. It would begin with the groom and all his friends wearing their most splendid clothing, going through the street in a parade to pick up the bride, who they would then carry through the street on a litter like a queen, dressed in a beautiful new dress that she would have made for the occasion. As they marched, everyone would join together, singing songs at the top of their lungs, basking in the sense of community, joy, and friendship. Once the bride arrived at the groom's house, his parents would bless her, and then everyone would spend the night playing games and dancing and just having so much fun. The next day was the wedding feast. They would gather and eat the most delicious food imaginable, all your favorites. Then they would give gifts. Dude, a celebration of romantic love and Christmas-like present giving? Dude, I'm telling you, I can get behind a holiday like this. Then they would be married, standing under, under a canopy. They would repeat words of love and loyalty. Their loved ones would bless them. And then the couple would vanish, consummate the marriage. But then they wouldn't dash off alone on a honeymoon. Instead, they would stay sharing in the merriment, the songs, the dancing under the star-strewn sky surrounded by those they love. Tell me you don't love that image. An escape from the hard world of dust and calluses, feeling clean, special, loved, and happy. You see, this sacrament celebration God is describing in D&C 27 is just another way of envisioning the wedding feast. It's just another way of seeing heaven. You see, what God is trying to do with the sacrament is he's trying to get you to see what is possible so you'll have confidence, so you'll live differently. The ordinance of sacrament bends time, Adam Miller says. Well, we're familiar with it bending time backwards. You're familiar with it pulling your mind back to Jesus and back to his sacrifice and victory that happened previously. But bending time forward, you're a little less familiar with this idea. But that is what he is trying to do with you. He's saying every time you are taking the sacrament, 
You are at the wedding feast. You are in the kingdom of God. You're at the celestial kingdom. You're saved. Today you are saved, right? You don't have to wait for the millennium. You don't have to wait for the celestial kingdom. That is the good news. Welcome to the party. God is saying, I love you. <laughs> God is good. It's so good. And at the end of Doctrine and Covenants 27, with this whole idea, he gives you one more image to solidify this idea of safety and love in your mind, to make this sacramental heaven feast more concrete and real for you. He invites you to imagine that you are covered all over in protective armor. The idea is that you are safe, that nothing, nothing Satan throws at you can hurt you that you are completely covered, head, shoulders, knees, and toes, all of it covered. It's like being in one of those giant padded sumo suits or one of those like big old bubble balls where you can just throw yourself into a game with reckless abandonment, giggling at the joy of life, get totally slobber knocked on your back and bounce right back up. That is the image God wants locked in your mind here. Usually we think of this image of armor uh, like things we have to do. Like step one, think really hard to protect my thoughts. Step two, exercise faith. And then on and on, and that will be my ticket into the celebration feast. No, that is not how you get in. The armor is a result of getting in. It is an outcome of what happens when you are in a relationship with Christ. Put on my armor is what he says. Put on Christ. That is what he's trying to get at. This protection is not something that happens once you scrape and you're good enough and then you're protected. No. The moment you come to Christ, he wraps you in his armor. These are results, not qualifications. And think about what would life be like if that were the case. What if you weren't scared anymore? What if nothing in this world could ever hurt you again? That is the promise of the gospel. You can see this you can see this as evidence of those who have been clothed in Christ. A young man who has struggled with lust in the past sees a beautiful woman walking by on the sidewalk before it would have sent him off spinning. Now with his loins girt about with truth through Christ he says, "Yep, she was cute." And then his mind comes back to the present without another glance or a thought and he keeps on walking. A young woman uh, has had a thoroughly unpleasant day at school. For some reason, there is a girl who has made it her mission in life to say mean things about her. But having on the breastplate of righteousness, meaning she is connected to the only righteous one, and knowing that God loves her and cares for her, she lets it go. In fact, on the way home, she says a prayer for that poor girl. And then it doesn't even cross her mind again as she enjoys the afternoon with her friends and dinner with her family. A college student is feeling the pressure to choose a major and to be a grown-up. And even though it is big, they never really freak out. They never feel like things are out of control because Christ has shod their feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. They know that he has always kept their path in the past and that he will continue to do so in the future. The path with their feet, their feet will tread will be an adventure. They don't know what's coming. It may be thorny. It may be twisty, but it'll be fun and they will be protected. 
A young mother has felt overcome with anxiety in the past. She's a high achiever, straight A's, outside hitter on the volleyball team, yearbook editor. But in the past, she was privately crippled with fear. For all her high achievement, she knew the truth. She knew it was all a house of cards, and one day she would screw it up. Every missed comma, every missed hit, every B on a quiz was a dagger in her heart. It was an exposure of her true identity. But recently, she spent some time getting to know Christ. And she's come to realize that he already saved her. She's already won. He's already won. So she chooses to believe that. She chooses to have faith in the fact that Christ has has helped her and, and Christ has strapped a shield to her so that every time Satan sends fiery darts of doubt and fear, they just evaporate like steam. A young woman has doubted that she could recover from a choice from choices she made. But in learning of Christ, she decides to trust him. It's like he has put a helmet on her brain. The, the doubt, shame, and guilt that used to be there have been replaced by salvation. All of this armor, you, you know what it is. It's God pouring out his spirit, flooding you with the certainty that you will be caught up to heaven. He is telling you that the world and Satan can't ever really hurt you again under his protection. There is no pain, no sorrow, no sin, or no effect of this broken world that he can't help you with. It's an invitation to bend time, not just to the past, but to the future. Next time you take the sacrament, I want you to to see not only that his body was broken, but I want you to see what his body was broken for. And with that bread, know that you are wrapped in Christ, armored, protected, safe. He's telling me, he's telling me, he's telling you, you're already at the sacrament feast. You're already there. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.